The title that I have for today's message is The Prophet Joel's Call to Repentance. And I'll start off just by reading the first verse of Joel. So that's Joel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. A lot of times when uh, someone is talking about the various prophets, you get a little bit of background about who this person is, you know, where they're coming from, you know, what's their place in society. We don't know anything about this man named Joel. Nothing. Um, I guess we know the name of his father, but that doesn't tell us a whole lot. All we have is his message. And in some ways it's, it's fitting because in, in Joel, my take on Joel is that he wants us to focus on something in particular. Something in particular. The message that Joel has is about the day of the Lord, which is a very important time. It's the changing point in, in human history, the day when Yahweh intervenes in human affairs, the day when the old order is turned upside down, when all the familiar comforts of life disappear suddenly, false security collapses, time when there's nowhere safe to stand and there really isn't anything to stand on. And God says in his word toward the back of the book, back of the Bible, behold, I make all things new. But to embrace the new, the new world that, that Christ brings, which we look forward to, and which we celebrate at the Feast of Trumpets, to embrace the new, we have to prepare our hearts and minds to let go of the old. We have to let go of a lot of things. And sometimes it takes a lifetime to let go of everything we need to let go of. And in that way, by letting go, we too become new. God is making us new. The path to that newness is repentance. The path to that newness is repentance. And Joel aims his prophetic message, his call at repentance. And this call to repentance goes out to all segments of society. He says, hear you elders. He says, wake up you drunkards. He says, despair, all you farmers, and put on sackcloth, you priests. And we'll go through these uh, as we go through the first chapter here of, of Joel. What Joel does, and you probably saw, well, you saw it in the picture there. Um, let me go back one here. Is he's using a calamity, a terrible thing that's happened in the nation and he builds his message around it. He's dealing with this infestation of locusts. So this is a picture of an infestation of locusts and they're so thick you can hardly see what that building is there in the background. And what Joel does is he builds his message around this agricultural societal disaster and uh, uses it to issue a general call to repentance. And I think that's fair game when something bad happens in society to use it. Uh, to good ends, to call people to uh, an awareness of God's presence in the world. What had happened there 
in the land was that the, uh, the land had recently, or maybe even while he was writing this, we don't really know, uh, suffered a devastating infestation of locusts. Has anyone ever been through a locust infestation? No, not really, right? My mother has, actually. Uh, she, she has been through a locust infestation. She was uh, born and raised in Manitoba, uh, which is north of North Dakota. And uh, we don't really have problems with locusts anymore because of all the you know, pesticides and DDT that we use. But uh, it is a real thing, and that's a picture of a real one that still happens in some parts of the world. But Joel wanted to use this catastrophe that was happening in the land at that time to awaken people's attention to their need for repentance. And one of the themes that he pulls upon is that disaster comes suddenly. The locusts just, they blow in with the wind and there they are. Secondly, that the consequences of sin are relentless. And he'll depict this, these locusts as marching forward relentlessly like an army. And those are the two themes that he, he uses the locusts to, to draw out. Unlike other prophets, Joel actually doesn't really call the people out on specific sins. Uh, he doesn't talk about all their various transgressions, their idolatry, their Sabbath breaking, their injustice. Other prophets talk about that. You, know, you can find out all kinds of information about what was going on at the time in the land. But Joel assumes that the reader, the hearer, is aware of the moral failings of the surrounding society. And very often I do that. I'll talk about, well, I'll use very general terms. I don't really want to get bogged down into all the nitty-gritty details of all the things that are happening in our society. I think that most people, I think all people in this congregation, have their ear to the ground. They know what's going on and they have eyes to see. Joel is likewise. He focuses his message instead on repentance. He assumes that the people see, they know, they have God's word in their hand, they can tell the difference. His purpose is to call to repentance. And the time to repent is now. Now is the time to repent. And the call goes out, as I mentioned, to the four groups, the first of which is the elders. And we can read about that in Joel chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has any, anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and tell your children to tell their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Now, the, the elders in that society were those who passed along social traditions. And we have a bit of that in our society, not a lot anymore. Uh, we have a little bit of that in the, in the church where the older members can remember things and tell you about the good old days. But, uh, you know, for the most part, people don't really want to hear about the good old days. Uh, but this, the elder had this role in society to pass along social traditions. And, and it was a very oral culture. They didn't have a lot of books. They definitely didn't have internet. They didn't have TV or radio. And so when you wanted to know, well, what happened? Where did we, you know, who are we as a people? What is our history? People would tell stories. 
And they'd probably gather around a fire, and if someone came through town who had a whole batch of news stories, or at least told the same old stories in a different way, he was, or she was, a very popular person for a time. Uh, that's how information was passed along. And, uh, you know, they would be the keepers of the corporate memory. You know, who are we as a people? What is our history? What happened in the days of old? And then there's this phrase here that says, tell it to your children, and their children should tell it to their children, and their children should tell it to their children. So there's this idea, obviously, of passing things along. That should take us back, mentally at least, to the Old Covenant, uh, where there are at least three places I could find where the nation of Israel is told, you need to tell your children, and you need to teach your children, and you need to teach them to teach their children. For example, Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 through 34. That's one of those places. Now, remember these things that God has done, who's brought you out of e Egypt and who's redeemed you, and tell it to your children and teach them about this stuff. Exodus 12 is more specifically about the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Tell your children what this is all about. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. We have a, an education program for the youth that's called Deuteronomy 6 program because it says, look, you parents, you elders, you have a responsibility to pass things on and to teach, okay? So now, in Joel, this command is turned upside down in a way because what they're passing along is not really positive information. They're not passing along uh, the good things that God has done. Instead, they're, uh, instead of remembering Yahweh's uh, Deliverance, they're called upon to testify concerning this terrible disaster that's falling upon them. Do you remember anything like this? Has it ever been this bad? And they would you know, hopefully be able to say no. I put it to you that we also live in a day and an age where we really aren't passing along essential knowledge and essential awareness. We're not telling it to our children and teaching them to teach their children. A lot of very important truth, and especially knowledge of God and remembrance of what God has done for us is passing away, and it's not being passed along. It's being forgotten. Hard times, hard times indeed. Now, this infestation of locusts we read about was no ordinary turning of the circle of life, you know. Um, it was unique, and he says, look, Think back into your, you know, comb the memory banks and you'll find that this is unique. Nothing like this has happened before. And you older people should know that. That's what he's saying. Now, normal locust plague would come quickly and then blow away like the wind. That's how they, they work. But here, this one's different. There are four successive waves of locusts, one after the other, and next one, and another one. What they left behind, the next one eats. So there are four successive waves of locusts bringing about complete and utter devastation. Now, I asked if anyone had uh, ever been through a locust infestation, and, and no one has, and I haven't either. My mom has, but uh, I haven't. So what I, what I did was I got uh, some excerpts here from some older books. These are from uh, British colonialists, which makes sense because then they're written in English. This would be from the 1800s. And so these would have been from all over different places in the world, like Australia, Africa, um, and so forth. 
So here are some excerpts where people have written about what it's like to go through a locust infestation. And you, know, you can just think of that picture that I showed you earlier of the locusts and they're just swarming everywhere. So here's the first one. It is a strange sight. Beautiful, if you can forget the destruction it brings with it. The whole air to 12 or eight, even 18 feet above the ground is filled with the insects, reddish brown in body with bright gauzy wings. And when the sun's rays catch them, it is like the sea sparkling with light. And when you see them against a cloud, they're like dense flakes of a driving snowstorm. You feel as if you had never before realized immensity in number. They blot out the sun above and cover the ground beneath and fill the air whichever way one looks. The breeze carries them swiftly past, but they come on in fresh clouds, a host of which there is no end. Each of them is a harmless creature which you can catch and crush in your hand, but appalling in their power of collective devastation. Here's another one. The roads, the roads were covered with them, all marching in regular lines. And you'll see Joel picks up on this way that locusts move. So all marching and in regular lines, like armies of soldiers with their leaders in front, and all the opposition of man to resist their progress was in vain. Having consumed the plantations in the country, they entered the towns and villages. And when they approached our garden, all the farm servants were employed to keep them off, but to no avail. Though our men broke their ranks for a moment, no sooner had they passed the men than they closed again and marched forward through hedges and ditches as before. Our garden finished, they continued their march toward the town, devastating one garden after another. They have also penetrated into most of our homes. And whatever one is doing, one hears the sound from without, like the noise of an armed host or the running of many waters. And when in an erect position, their appearance at a little distance is like that of a well-armed horseman. Another one. For 80 or 90 miles, that's a lot of space. They devoured every green herb and every blade of grass. The gardens outside Jaffa, so this would be actually in Palestine, are now completely stripped. Even the bark of the young trees has been devoured. And they look like birch trees, a birch tree forest in winter. The bushes were eaten quite bare, though the animals could not uh, have been long on the spot. They sat by hundreds on a bush, gnawing the rind of the woody fibers. Bamboo groves have been stripped of their leaves and left standing like saplings after a rapid bushfire, and grass has been devoured so that the bare ground appeared as if burned. The trees and the dryness of the herbs, sorry, sorry, the country did not seem to have been burnt, but to be much covered with snow through the whiteness of the trees and the dryness of the herbs. The fields finished, they invade towns and houses in search of stores, food of all kinds, hay, straw, even linen and woolen clothes and leather bottles they consume or tear in pieces. They flood through the open, unglazed windows and lattices and nothing can keep them out. So I added one little thing here to these anecdotes and I picked this up from some sort of like animal Wikipedia type place, a little factoid for you. A desert locust storm, which would be what we're talking about in the area of Palestine, can be 460 square miles in size. 
That's a lot of, lot of size. And it can pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into less than half a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants every day. So a swarm of such size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. The daily food consumption of a large swarm has been estimated at equaling that of a million and a half men. So that gives you a little bit more of a feel for what a locust infestation was, was like. It was savage and it was all consuming. And Joel's gonna use that, you'll see later on. So the drunkards, let's read about them in Joel 1, verses 5 through 10. It says here, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, and those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, and the ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed, and the new wine is dried up, and the olive oil fails. So, who's a drunkard in society? What, are, what, is, what does a drunkard represent? Well, the drunkards are representative of those who take the fruitfulness of the land uh, for granted and who use it to excess. Talking about wine, but it can apply to a lot of different things. You know, there's a lot of richness in the land and some people, maybe some of us even, use it in ways that really ought not be used to excess which is uh, self-indulgent. And that's what the drunkards are representing here. Those who are self-indulgent, who are not concerned with the things of God, but they can cover more than just people who like to drink booze. Now within the covenant, God warned the entire nation of Israel. He warned them that when they became rich, when they became rich with blessings, that they were in danger. They were in danger because it was very easy for them when they had a lot, it was easy for them to forget him who gave them what they had. And I put it to you that we too live in such a time when we have so much. Inflation aside, you know, it might seem like, oh boy, times are hard. We have an awful lot. We are very, very blessed. But when we have a lot, and God warns about this. When you have a lot, you tend to think, well, aren't I great? And you forget the one who gave it to you, who made it possible. We too are in an abundant land that is filled with self-indulgence and disregard for the things of God. And the abundance that God gives and has given is taken away very suddenly. The people of Israel had this happen to them. It was taken away very suddenly. Notice the phrase, it says, it was snatched from your lips. As if, you know, the, the guy's lifting the, 
the, the glass of wine up to his mouth to enjoy it, and then whoosh, it's grabbed out of his hands and snatched from his lips. Suddenness, suddenness, it's taken away. And disaster, if you think about it. And maybe even judgment. It comes like that. Slowly, 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 suddenly. And it, in scripture, sometimes is likened to a woman going into labor or a snare that snaps shut. Um, now, I think a lot of us have experienced the whole process of getting pregnant and and labor, I mean, obviously the men haven't gotten pregnant, but we've experienced the, you know, we've watched it from, from the sidelines, okay? But you know, you, you, you become pregnant, okay, and you, you, you know, then you, the wife starts getting bigger, and you know, the baby's moving along, and, and you kind of know you've got, you know, how much time you've got, and you, it comes slowly, slowly, and it's moving along. But when the day comes, all right, it's, okay, it's coming, and then next thing you know, wah! And you're running around, you're trying to find a car, you gotta to get to the hospital real quick because you're concerned, you know what I mean? And it's slowly, slowly, suddenly. And that's what the analogy is. And that's how disaster and, and even judgment come about. You know, um, the snare is the other one you see a lot in scripture. You know, and it just lies there quietly, <laughs> minding its own business until someone steps in it. And suddenly. And so we're warned about suddenness. And I think that the Bible does this, warns us about suddenness, which it does over and over and over again. And Joel's definitely using it. I think it's in there to counteract a way of thinking that's very easy for us to slip into, which is, well, look, I'll see it when it's coming. Okay? I know the signs. I've heard all the, I've heard all the, uh, messages about prophecy. I know what's going to happen. And, you know, when it happens, I'll know it's coming. I'll be, I'll be on top of things. Then I'll get serious. Now, then I'm really going to get serious about repenting because I'll know, wow, the time is short. Okay? And, and I think, you know, God's word says you can get caught that way. You know, you can get caught that way, like the snare. Or like the person who's not prepared for his wife to go into labor. Because God's word tells us you should repent now, right? Before you run out of time. Before the suddenness falls upon you. And the locusts in, in Joel came suddenly. But they were also predictable. They were also kind of predictable. Locusts are actually one of the covenant punishments for disobedience. So let's see, I've got my ribbon here. I'm going to put it in there and I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy 28. Verse 38. So the covenant was basically a contract and it said, if you do this, I'll do that. There were blessings. There were also cursings, punishments for you know, breaking the covenant. So in this section of uh, curses for disobedience, Verse 38 says, You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. Uh, drop down to verse 42 
It says, swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. So it's actually something that, you know, given their attitude towards the covenant with God, they kind of could have predicted it. This is what happens. You know, we're going to get problems, agricultural problems with locusts. When Joel describes the locusts, he says that they are... Uh, they have teeth and fangs, and so he's kind of mixing the metaphors here, um, alerting us. We're not just talking about plain old insects, okay? Um, and we'll see later on that Joel uses the locust as a metaphor for invading armies, which is an escalated form of punishment, uh, which is also built into the covenant. Go to verse 49, and it says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. A fierce nation, without respect for the old, pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock, the crops of your land, until you're destroyed. And they'll leave you with no grain, new wine, olive oil, or calves, or herds. And they will lay siege to all your cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. So this prophecy of the locusts is also a prophecy for the end time for the day of the Lord. But we'll get there soon enough. First, let's finish our, our listing here. The farmers are the group that came next. Uh, let me read in Joel. Um, so it says, Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Well, we read about it a little before that as well. There were going to be some other consequences. You know, the locusts come in, they basically destroy all the crops and so forth. Bottom line, the food is gone. It's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? It's hard for, it's hard for me to imagine the food being gone. You know, right now it's like, well, you know, I feel like, I feel like a bag of chips. Oh, there's none in the cupboard. Well, I'm going to go to the store and I'll buy myself a bag of chips or whatever it is that I want, you know, stick of butter. I'm, you know, I don't have any butter. I need to make a, a cake, right? I'll just go to the store and get it. It's hard for us to imagine the food being gone. But there's a, there's a message here that says stuff can happen and it can happen really, really, really fast. So the food is gone. And, you know, as we just read, mourn like a virgin. The, the, the wedding's called off. Things are terrible. They're mourning instead of celebrating. The festive eating and drinking at the temple is called off because there's no food. There are no animals, no grain to offer as sacrifice. Now, good crops and abundant livestock and rain in due season are all blessings of the covenant. Um, I'm going to go back then to Deuteronomy 28 again. So Deuteronomy 28... It uh, was part of the covenant that God said, look, I will bless you. If you, if you obey, you're, you're going to be blessed. And the agricultural blessing was what he had in mind. Uh, Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 through 6 says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, which I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations on earth. And all, the, all these blessings will come to you on, sorry, 
All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, the crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lamb of your flocks, your basket, your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. So the problems they were having agriculturally were also covenant related, which ties it back to their relationship with God, which was not going well. I mentioned, you know, Joel doesn't really catalog all their, their various problems. He's assuming, you know, we know there's a problem. Well, what's happening is these blessings of the covenant are being withdrawn. They're being taken away. The food is gone. The wedding celebration's called off. And Jesus told us, you know, and this is kind of moving forward in Joel, because he's going to get there and I'm going to go there with him, that at the end time, and as the end time approached, people would be enjoying the blessings of God's creation. They'll be eating, they'll be drinking, they'll be having parties, giving in, you know, and giving in marriage celebrations and, and all kinds of good stuff. You know, of course, there's going to be some people who enjoy it and some people who don't, some people who suffer. But people are going to be enjoying all the good things that God makes available for us right up to the very end, taking it for granted, not giving him his credit. But Jesus told us that's how people will be. The joys of life would continue and then suddenly end. And in that, God issues a call to repentance. And God's call to repentance is always there, really. His call of repentance goes up before the disaster and says, look, I'm telling you folks, this is going to happen. I mean, right in the covenant itself, there's a, you know, saying, look, if, if you do this, the bad things are going to happen. Change your ways. So God's call to repentance goes up before disaster. And that is, by the, by the way, that's the best time to repent before bad things happen. God's call to repentance and the door to repentance stays open even while the disaster is happening. You can repent even while something bad is happening. It's not too late. But there is a time when it just becomes too late. You don't want to be caught up in that, that suddenness of disaster. You don't want that to happen to you. All right, the next group would be the priests. Well, let me go back to Joel, read verse 13 and 14. It says, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Now the priest, he, he enjoyed status in the community. A lot of respect within society, and he had a lot of pleasant uh, duties. He officiated at festivals, he collect, collected tithes, he would share in the offerings that the people brought. But the priest, and those who, as it says, those who minister before God, also had a duty. The less fun side of it, perhaps, they also had a duty to call people to repentance. 
And they're being reminded here, and Joel's saying, look, you've got a job to do. You need to call people to repentance. Call them to fast and show godly sorrow over sin. Call them to gather together for instruction. You know, if people aren't instructed, how would they know what to repent of? Call them to, to come to the house of God, seeking forgiveness and deliverance from sin. Go to Matthew 4, verse 17. We uh, live in a time when, you know, people talk about Jesus in ways that are, are kind of hard to understand. Like, for me and, and perhaps you, you know, there's a way of presenting Jesus as if he's, he's just all about the good times. You know? And it's all about acceptance and welcoming and, and joy and all that. If you take a look at what Matthew says, uh, basically Matthew takes Jesus' preaching and puts it in a nutshell here. And he says in verse 17 of chapter 4, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what did he preach? Puts it all in one sentence here. Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. The preaching of Jesus Christ begins with repentance. There's a lot of good stuff that comes after that, right? And, and you know, it's fun, to, it's more enjoyable perhaps to think about all the good stuff, but it begins by listening to and heeding the call to repentance. Okay, so now Joel moves on into a different phase, right? Things kind of change, and they move forward into the future, if you will. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Let, uh, let me take a look at uh, verse 15 through 20 of chapter 1. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. Now, if you know Scripture... You know that the day of the Lord is basically, you know, your, your cue. Okay, we've just shifted into talking about the end time. It says, It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. So it's not just talking about locusts anymore. How the cattle moan, and the herd mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness." Now, the first section of Joel, which we went through, reflected back on a disaster that had happened in the land of Israel, this infestation of locusts, and presented the infestation as an opportunity, a learning opportunity for the people, um, because it was in one way a fulfillment of the punishments built into the covenant, and then it was also a call to sober up. You know, disaster can happen very fast. 
Now in this next section, Joel considers the devastation that they've gone through as having some lessons looking forward, looking forward to the far future, the day of the Lord. And when the day of disaster comes, the people are helpless to do anything about it. It's, it, it just becomes too late. It becomes too late. And all the great agricultural wealth they'd built up, you know, their storehouses, their barns, was of no help to them. The locusts had eaten it all up. And all they could do was cry out, cry out to God in despair, just like the hungry, thirsty animals in the field. You know? I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, disaster has come. And that's the way it's going to be for many people at Christ's return. Because this is how people, how people respond to the call to repentance and disaster. Most do not even see the disaster coming. Okay? Things have always been up and down and we're just in a cycle and it's all just going to work itself out. Most people don't even see the disaster coming. And they're caught up in the events like fish who are caught up in a net. Woo! Next thing you know, they're dinner. Many, this is a big group here, this is a scary group. Many see the disaster coming, but don't know what to do about it. And there are a lot of people I've talked to over the past few years who've said, you know, I just don't like the way I see things going around this country, okay? I think they might fall into that category. They see bad stuff coming, but they don't know what to do about it. Now some, some see it coming and prepare themselves for that day. How? Well, they pray, they repent, and they persistently seek the deliverance that only God can give. Now, you want to be in group three, the third group. That's where you want to be. That's where you want to be. And the way to do that is to take stock and to repent. Now, not waiting until you know, you, you're timing it. Oh, I want to wait till the hands of the clock are almost at 12, and then, and then I'll repent, because it's going to be hard Repenting is going to be hard. Like my picture of grasshoppers there? Kind of creepy, isn't it? Well, that was the idea. It's supposed to be kind of creepy. <laughs> Creepiness achieved. An attack on Zion. An attack on Mount Zion, which is an attack on Jerusalem. Because Zion is in Jerusalem. Let's take a look at uh, Joel 2, verses 1 through 9. Blow the trumpet in Zion. That's why I think that this is an appropriate book to be reading at this time of year, because the Feast of Trumpets is coming up. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm in my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. You know, except instead of light, it's darkness. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor will ever be in ages yet to come. We'll come back to that verse. Before them fire devours, and behind them a flame blazes. 
Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry, with a horse like that of, with a sorry with a noise like that of chariot. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. And at the sight of them, nations are in anguish, and every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They climb. Upon, they run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Well, I think you can see the you know the similarity to the description that I read earlier about locusts and people who'd been through one of these infestations. And you know what Joel's doing is he's kind of mixing the the memory they would have had of the locusts with this prophecy of what what lay ahead, the time of the end. And he uses the terrifying memory of these swarming insects to dramatically picture a human army attacking and invading Jerusalem. And this section started off with the blowing of a trumpet. Doo -doo -doo. And the trumpet there is blown to call armies to battle on the day of the Lord. That's one of the aspects that we find trumpets used for, a call to battle. Now notice, I, I said that I would come back to this. There's this verse in here that says, um, there's, where is it? Such as never was in times of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Now Daniel 12 verse one used a very similar phrase. And we went through that when I went through the book of Daniel. And, um, he was referring to the end time persecution. This was a time unlike any that would ever, has ever happened or any that will ever be. And Jesus used the same basic phrase in Matthew 24 verse 11 when he was describing the situation right before his return. He said there's going to be this time of trouble like has never happened before, will never happen again afterwards. Okay. The use of this phrase in Joel tells us he is referring to the same time. A unique point in human history, referring to the time when armies surround Jerusalem at the end time, which is the picture we have for the return of Christ, which is what we talk about on the Feast of Trumpets. And locusts are used as a picture here of a relentless and terrifying end time army. And that imagery is, is picked up in Revelation. Let's just go to Revelation 9. which is talking about the, the unleashing of these horrible armies. Uh, Revelation 9, verses 1 through 3. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. And the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a giant furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth, and they were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. 
Then it goes on, and I, I'm sure you've read this through before, and you know, it goes into some of the details of how awful, how horrible it was, but notice locusts are used to describe these swarming armies that are unleashed when, when God finally lets them loose. Uh, drop down to uh, verse 7 through 11. It says, The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. Um, I won't read the whole section out here, but it goes into detail describing them, sort of mixing the metaphor between locusts and human armies. And, and it ties us back to Joel. And the concept is the suddenness of it all, the and also the relentless and terrifying moving forward of it all, and also sort of the inevitability of it all. When God's restraining hand, as we read there in Revelation, is removed, when he's no longer holding back the powers of spiritual wickedness, they swarm out of the abyss like a cloud of locusts, right? That is covered in clouds of darkness, which is very similar to what Joel described. Okay, moving along, what happens next? Christ intervenes. Joel 2, verses 10 and 11. Before them, the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. And who can endure it? Now, when, when Jesus referred to the time of distress, he said it was going to be bad. And he said it was going to be so bad that he himself would have to intervene and cut it short or all human life would end. And Joel's prophecies got the same pattern going on here. Okay, There's this terrible stuff happening. And then there's right there in verse 10, it says, stop. Before them, the earth begins to shake. There are signs in the sky. And then the Lord appears with an army. Okay? If you go back to Revelation chapter 6 this time, we'll just take a quick look at, at you know, where you can find that in Revelation. Revelation 6 verse 12. The sixth seal. It says, I watched... As he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun turned black like sackcloth uh, made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars from the, fell from the sky to earth. The sixth seal is, is interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but consider this. Okay? The signs of the sixth seal, the earth shaking. Anyone ever been in an earthquake? Oh my, there's a lot of people in this room have been through an earthquake. I have two. Um, in Raleigh, we only had two, but here we look at like eight or nine people, it seems. Wow. So you've been through an earthquake. Very unnerving, isn't it? It's very unnerving. Whoa, what's happening? Very, very disturbing. The signs of the sixth seal tell us that the world as we know it and as we believe it to be is coming to an end. Things are going to change in ways that we can't even imagine. We very much take for granted the solid earth beneath our feet. When you get out of bed, 
and you, 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 you know, it may be a little dark, you're a little groggy, and you roll your feet out of bed, you're expecting the floor to be there, right? Right? <laughs> okay, maybe not. I don't know what you're doing that night, but <laughs> when I wake up, I'm usually expecting to get out of bed and there's going to be a good solid floor beneath me. You expect the ground to be there. You get out of your car, you expect, what if it wasn't there? You know, oh. you ever walk down the stairs and you know, you, you know, if it's dark and you miscounted the stairs and you think, whoa, oh, whoa. It can be very unnerving. You thought there was a stair there and, there's not, and, and you almost fall over and crack your head open because you take certain things for granted, right? That's the, the, the point. And we take that for granted. We take the fact that there's a solid earth beneath our feet for granted. And we take for granted that the sun will rise in the morning, right? We might not always see it because the clouds are there, but we know the sun's up because the sky becomes light. We expect that, right? The sixth seal says both those things are taken away. They're put up, they're put, you know, you start questioning it. Well, the earth is, is, is quivering beneath my feet. The sun hasn't come up. Something's changed. The things that we take for granted, which we most expect, you know, I can count on that. No, that's the sixth seal. And it's announcing that everything's changing. Everything that you take for granted is being, going to be called into question. And something new is happening. And then again, in verse 11, it says, Then the Lord himself appears at the head of an army, right, to overthrow the armies that are gathered to fight at Mount Jerusalem. The glorious second coming of Christ is good news. It's good news, you know. It's very good news. And it's something that we, we consider a cause for rejoicing. We gather together at the Feast of Trumpets. It's you know, rejoice at the Feast of Trumpets. And we focus on looking forward to all the changes that will happen when Christ returns. And that is good news. Right? The good news of the kingdom of God. But I believe, it, I believe that the day the, the day that we're looking at, the day of the Lord, which is also the Feast of Trumpets, also contains an element of sobriety and repentance. So how should you respond to prophecy? Let me read Joel 2, verses 12 and 14. God says, even now, even now, declares the Lord, You've heard all this stuff. Even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And who knows? I love this verse. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings, drink offerings for the Lord your God. How should you respond to prophecy? God spells it out for you. <laughs> Repent. I mean, when we look at prophecies, and I've done a fair bit of that over the past few years, mostly looking at prophecies from the, that are done, prophecies that have been fulfilled, okay? Been a focus of mine. Prophecies about past events that have been fulfilled, like the restoration of the temple 
after 70 years, according to, to Jeremiah's prophecy, which we've gone into a couple of times, or the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel and its fulfillment with the return of Christ, or the other prophecies of the first coming of Christ, which are foretold and fulfilled. These are all things that we should study and we should know, and they help us, they build confidence in the authority of the Bible. So that's one way of responding to prophecy. Then there are prophecies about the future. Obviously, they're going to serve a different purpose, different function. Prophecies about the future can serve the purpose of giving us confidence in the future. Confidence in the future. And I think that we need that in our day and age. God will not allow the world to descend into a dystopian nightmare. If you watch movies, and you know, I think we all do, you see these movies that come out of Hollywood, how many of them are about how horrible the future is going to be? How many? Anything that talks about the future is scary. It's a horror movie, basically. God is not going to let that happen. There is hope for planet Earth. And we can take confidence in God's prophecies because the prophecies that have come to pass give us that understanding of the authority of Scripture and we can look at prophecies that have not yet come to pass as confidence for the future. And better even than that, which we'll talk about at the Feast of Tabernacles, you have the potential to play a role in that future. Now, you know, because we know God's word to be true, and reliable, prophecies of the future call us to repent so that we don't become swept up in judgment, condemnation, the suddenness of destruction. And what does repent mean? I mean, it's kind of a Bible word. It basically means to acknowledge the need for change and then to start making that change, okay? To overcome sin, to put on the mind and heart of God so that you can be part of the solution. Instead of like one of these you know, characters that's running from darkness in some dystopian Hollywood movie. Notice that, that you know, through Joel, God calls for real change. He says, you know, don't, don't just you know, like make a show of it and tear your shirt. Tear your heart. You know? be, be real about this. Not just going through the motions. And if we do that, as it says, who knows? Who knows? We do that. God is gracious. God is compassionate. He's forgiving. And he is ready to bless. And real repentance is, you know, he's calling for it here. Real repentance changes who we are within. Right? Changes who we are. But if you read on, in verse 15, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly and gather the people and consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders, call, sorry, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. And let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. 
And let them say, spare your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? So real repentance, yes, begins within, you know, change of heart, okay? But notice that Joel's, through Joel, God still wants the people to do the outward things. He still wants them to do the outward things. He wants them to gather together for an assembly. He wants them to, you know, heed the blowing of the trumpet that calls them. And there's a great verse in Matthew 23, verse 23, uh, you know, where, where Jesus comes across the Pharisees and they're tithing, you know, their little mint leaves and stuff like that. And they're, you know, dealing with the small matters. And he says, you guys do this stuff and you miss the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, faith, okay? You know, and I think a lot of times people think, well, yeah, you know, he's right. We need to focus on the big issues. But notice what Jesus says right after that. He says, tend to the weightier matters without leaving the other matters of godly obedience undone. Read it. That's what he says. Don't leave the other stuff undone, the outward things that God has asked you to do. Yes, change within but do the without. God is concerned with both the inward and the outward person. Gather together before God. So the trumpet calls, and it calls the believers to a sacred assembly. You're called to a sacred assembly. The Feast of Trumpets is coming up soon. Please be there. And they're called to consider the terrifying things that they've heard and seen, but also to, to repent and to seek deliverance and to tend to the change that they need to bring into their lives. And those who minister before God are given a special task, even here, which is to lead the entire community in a prayer of repentance to seek forgiveness, to confess the many ways that they have failed, failed in their commission to live as examples of God's way for others. We have that commission, and maybe we've failed, and maybe we can take stock of that, repent, make changes. And in verse 18, it says this, God will hear. It says, then the Lord was jealous for his land, and he took pity on his people. He heard their prayers, he heard their repentance, he, he knew that they were changing. And he replied to them, verse 19, I'm going to send you grain and new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully, and never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. So be there when the trumpet is blown. Well, we don't blow a trumpet anymore, but be there for the Feast of Trumpets. And perhaps add to it uh, a spirit of repentance and change.